right, welcome to the Cigar Snob Podcast. I am Nick Jimenez. I am joined by a special guest here. We're with Glenn Loop, Executive Director of Cigar Rights of America, CRA for short, as everybody knows it. Cigar Rights of America. That's right. We're live now? We're live. We're, we're, <laughs> well, we're not live, so you can say all kinds of ridiculous shit that we'll cut out later. <laughs> Uh, that's one of the one of the benefits of not being live. We know we know better than to trust ourselves with live around here. Uh, so uh, Glenn is in Miami on a little bit of a uh, call it a layover, I guess. Um, layover uh, swing between the TAA, the mm-hmm. Tobacconist Association of America, and the uh, Big Smoke Florida tomorrow night. And uh, so we're gonna make a lot of pit stops in the Greater Miami area today. Nice. So for people who don't know what TAA is, because uh, I think it's probably something that maybe a lot of like. Uh, sort of mildly engaged consumers come across every now and again and don't quite understand what that is. Tell us what that is and tell us about that, about what it was like actually being well, it was there. Something. The, uh, it's the Tobacconist Association of America, which right. is 51 years old this year. This was their 51st annual meeting. It's kind of funny. The Tobacconist Association of America uh, never meets in America. Uh, right. And it's because of uh, the, it's really driven by the smoking issue and having resorts and hotels and the like that open themselves up and, uh, welcome the industry, if you will. So it's really the, and I hope I have this number right, but it's really the top 75 retailers in the country. They have multiple stores, not all of them. A lot of them are single shops, but they're significant buyers in the industry. Uh, Well-stocked humidors, obviously, uh, across the nation. A coalition of probably 30 to 50, I'm guessing there, 30 to 40 major manufacturers, uh, they run special purchasing opportunities, but really one of the most unique things about it is the TAA exclusive series. Uh, select companies provide uh, select distinct cigars available just for those retailers. And I'm not going to say it's uh, totally to, to provide some balance with, with internet purchasing and the like, but when you can offer unique product like that, it sure. does bring the consumer into the door that you may not otherwise get. So in that way, respect, it's great for the brick-and-mortar tobacconists across America. And the retailers span from California to North Carolina, uh, very geographically diverse. Uh, so they come together once a year for these. We do uh, seminars on the politics of cigars, the litigation, the, the legislation, um, they're specialty, and this is one of the things I really learn, uh, enjoy about it is the way you learn about the industry because every year they do what's called the dream machine and they do surveys on different business characteristics, business aspects of running a brick and mortar cigar shop, uh, how you interact with the manufacturing community. How do you hire people? What mm-hmm. sells? What doesn't, um, do events work, do branded lounges work. So they really get into meat and potatoes of the industry in terms of, of, Really, a, how do you bring consumers through the front door, and how do you service them, um, and how do you provide these truly unique products, unique blends, unique sizes that you can't get anywhere else? And I think that's one of the most exciting parts about it. Right. So, uh, Cigar Rights of America is a, a consumer-based, primarily advocacy group. Uh, you guys do work related to all of the various uh, government intrusions on mm-hmm. people's right to enjoy cigars. Uh, before we get into some of the stuff about uh, what's going on in the states? We just talked about that you had to to leave to have some of mm-hmm. these some of these conversations and and gather all these people together. Um, talk a little bit about uh, what it's like for you being a bridge between uh, all these issues that are at play in the states and some of these cigar makers who spend so much of their time 
outside of the state, some of whom maybe don't even speak great English, and so it, it maybe makes some of these issues and some of the material less accessible to them. H- how does that affect your work and 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 the the all the stuff that you that you're going through, given their role here? Well, that's a really intriguing question and an intriguing way to to, to approach it. Um, cigars are a true anomaly politically. You would think it would be easy. Uh, the I'm not going to say the ease of producing or growing or right. blending. Uh, that's all a very complex science, if you will. Um, but you would think something as simplistic as a totally all-natural agrarian product, uh, what you're smoking is what came out of the ground, artisan-skilled manufacturers that have put generations of, of labor and and skill to work to bring the, like the cigars that we're smoking uh, to life. And appealing to a demographic that brings you into a store, uh, allows you to purchase cigars across the spectrum, and then enjoying them. You would think that's, in a way, a simplistic explanation of what we do and what we're all about. And that's what we're trying to protect. It becomes ever more complex in this new political day environment that we're living in. Um, As you mentioned, the the, uh, really the Latin Caribbean basin type of anchor that the industry is geographically in the world. Yeah, at least and in terms of manufacturing. In manufacturing, that one of the pieces of the story that we consistently harp on, that we stress, is that this ought to be reflective of the trade relationship between the United States and Latin America. Um, I've just mentioned the TAA. Uh, we were at the closing dinner with, with Altadis uh, at a beautiful complex near their, their La Romana factory. And they brought up the what they call cigar maestros. There's Ivan. Hey, just walking in. Look at there. See how we do things around here? It's 11 p.m. and people are just getting into the office. <laughs> 11 a.m., sorry. I'm not sure. <laughs> I want to work in Miami. We need a branch office down here so I can show up and work at 11. But we that it was at that dinner that it was brought up that, that premium handmade cigars represent 55% of the exports from the Dominican Republic. Um, obviously they're, they're, uh, strong with, with sugar and rum, uh, with the tourism industry, but cigars representing 55% of the, of the exports from that country is incredibly significant. Uh, what cigars mean to the economy of Honduras and Nicaragua, uh, what it means to the leaf growers in Ecuador and Brazil and Mexico and the now growing production uh, capacity. And we've met with them in Washington and with Costa Rica. Uh, bringing in different tobaccos, representing the trade relationship with Cameroon in the uh, Central African Republic. That's a, not insignificant that there are thousands of farms associated with pre- the premium handmade cigar industry from Ecuador to Cameroon. It is an amazing depiction of what we mean economically uh, to some very needy, economically desperate parts of the world. Yeah, And we've, for example, uh, orchestrated letters from the embassies to the State Department to the National Security Council, saying that you're jeopardizing 300,000 jobs in Latin America, and that's not a BS number, 300,000 jobs in a very economically and politically fragile part of the world. Yeah. And that cannot be stressed enough, and it's something that we're really reopening with the Trump administration in a national security context. We have a quote, for, and I might, I don't want to get off base here, but... We have a quote from the uh, United States, the the ambassador from the uh, nation of Honduras to the United States. 
uh, totally drawing the correlation between the Texas border crisis and cigar regulation. Mm-hmm. And in it, it clearly states, why should the United States government, I'm paraphrasing, but this is, I don't mind going on record by saying sure, this yeah. is the spirit in which the ambassador conveyed this. Why should the United States government advance regulations on an industry that's a cornerstone of our national economy that allows Honduran families to take care of themselves within their nation? Right. And this was when the Texas border crisis originally started to erupt, and there were of the of the population of the children associated with that border crisis, 20,000 of them were from Honduras. And for the ambassador to go on record and equate that with cigar regulation is an amazing commentary. Mm -hmm. And I just did a briefing in in Washington for the CAFTA countries, Central American Free Trade Agreement countries. We were in the Dominican embassy and we had representatives of Guatemala in in the meeting. And he totally said, we will inject ourselves. They didn't seem any more happy than the president about, quote unquote, caravans and the like, saying, attack the cigar regulation in the spirit of what's right for the economy of that country Mm -hmm. to allow Honduran families to take care of themselves within their own nation. I've been in briefings with where, for example, Rocky Patel was telling the majority leader of the United States Senate at the time, Harry Reid, about equating us, you know, to the two wage earner families. Healthcare, childcare, clinics, uh, religious institutions provided by the premium cigar industry because they're an intricate part of the community fabric. And that's a message that should not be lost on the federal government that makes this a whole lot bigger of an issue than talking about things like public health impact that we'll chat about in a little bit. Right. And it's so much easier, I think, for people to uh, sort of intuit some of the the broad connections when you talk about, let's say, I don't know, hospitality in Miami. There's a sort of innate sense of, okay, if you affect hospitality, that's going to have these ripple effects through all these other things. You talk about places like Esteli, like Den Lee. It's not just literally the people who are sitting rolling the cigars mm. or harvesting the tobacco. It's it's their families. It's the people who, who bust them to and from their jobs. It's, uh, it's all these things. It's it, the generations of training they go through to have right, those jobs. Right. It's the people who are in the cottage industries, you know, the people who are uh, doing like uh, selling lunches to people when they're on their breaks, all that stuff. Oh, I've been outside of, of, uh, of uh, Casa Fuente. Yeah. When they've come from the barns and the fields and the like there, and there's a truly, I don't think we're off base but off base by saying trickle down economics sure yeah, yeah but that's exactly what amounts to i remember being on one of my first trips to honduras my wife is over here we were in honduras at on the uh, on the rocky patel tour and the number of really what are quintessential farmers markets right that are intentionally set up across from cigar factories buying their fresh produce their fresh meats their fish whatever mm-hmm. the case might be to take home to their families each and every day that is truly trickle-down economics, if you will, not in an evil context. Sure, sure. <laughs> so, uh, okay, so I want to bring things back to uh, to the States, uh, but, you know, just given that you were in the DR, and uh, I figured that'd be as good a segue as any into, into that side of things. Uh, so you are sitting in front of a very tall stack of papers. Uh, let's talk about the comment that, uh, that you all filed with the FDA in July. And before we get into that, let's give a little bit of a primer, because one of the things that we've found is, People tend to find this podcast, and they're not always people who subscribe to the magazine mm. or who consume any kind of cigar media. You know, this is a very sort of different uh, uh, platform. So let's give people a little, you know, two-minute primer on what it is that we're dealing with and what what we've been staring down over the last few years. Well, I feel like with this 
document in front of me, which is 529 pages. I'm having a flashback to that Ross Perot being on Larry King, where he, yeah, he's, but it was the radio show, and and uh, and Ross Perot says, "Now, Larry, Larry, look at the chart. Look at the chart. Show the chart to your listeners." And King says, uh, "We're on the radio, Ross." <laughs> <laughs> But uh, to your listeners. But um, to the point, uh, we're all obviously in the in the throngs of the Trump administration, and he named Dr. Scott Gottlieb to be commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration. And uh, frankly, I don't mind going on record as talking about the background leading up to his confirmation hearing in the United States Senate. Mm-hmm. We uh, worked with our Senate allies at the time, Senator Bill Nelson of Florida. Uh, individuals like Senator Marco Rubio of Florida, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who were part of the confirmation process. And we made it very clear that if he got this job, he needed to do something to rectify what the previous administration had done on the regulatory front to premium handmade cigars. So uh, especially Nelson and Rubio really uh, pressed hard in his pri- their private and public meetings with Senator Rubio and, and Nelson. Um, there were in those hearings, Senator Rubio specifically really went after, if you will, uh, Dr. Gottlieb to say something different has to be done. You can't have this one size fits all. You can't provide this cigarette model to, to a premium handmade cigars and true to his word. Uh, they got that message across and, uh, the, the July after the confirmation, he held a press conference. I think it was July 28th. Uh, and, and he said, we're going to reopen the public comment on premium handmade cigars that helps separate us, allow us to give a distinct message, separate, separate us from the previous regulatory program, which lumped us in with e-cigarettes and vape, mm-hmm. as well as hookah and pipe tobacco. And it allowed us to tell our unique message because up until that point, they had clearly wanted a one size fits all approach. In many ways, they treat us worse than cigarettes. Uh, especially when it comes to things like warning labels and pre-market approval and changing of blends and submitting them to the federal government for approval before they can go to market. It was and is worse than cigarettes. So on July 25th of this past year, we submitted this 529-page document, which for the first time in history uh, allowed the industry to go on record with research that it never had at its disposal. It dives into the, in the when they when they called for this comment, they said you can only submit new data. Well, we could not have planned it ourselves any better. The previous January to to last July, uh, the New England Journal of Medicine, of all periodicals, the most acclaimed, credible periodical in the medical industry, goes on record and says, "Guess what? Premium handmade cigars are not appealing to America's youth." A month later. American Medical Association, guess what? We're not killing everybody. An analysis of thousands and thousands of, of transactions allowing us to, to document for the first time the demographic of the premium cigar industry. For example, we're able to document a person has their first cigarette at 16, their first cigar at age 27. Then the demographic jumps to 35. Then it jumps to 50. We are, we're able to substantiate the user patterns mm-hmm. that... You know, you're not chain smoking cigars. It doesn't have the addiction, the inhalation, the mortality types of impacts. It it allowed us to go on record on all of these types of subjects. I've argued for some time, if the only benefit of regulation is it has forced the premium cigar industry to take a better look at itself. It has forced us to reflect on what we are. It's forced us to do research that we never had before at our disposal. 
This is coupled with a study that, that came out last year on the economic impact of the regulation. So we submit that mm-hmm. because they never properly, the Obama administration specifically, and I don't say that in a partisan context, but the Obama administration never did a proper economic impact analysis on the regulation. So now we have a, a brilliant report by, written by a former FDA economist that, that clearly notes the 25,000 domestic American jobs that are at risk as a result of these regulations. So all this is composed in this report. It's public uh, information. It's available on our website. And, and frankly, and I just spoke about this at TAA, this document now can be used for any political fight we're involved in. We can use it on smoking bans at the state level, mm-hmm. regulation at the local level. And we'll chat about some of those case studies. But this document, which cost over a quarter of a million dollars, uh, is going to be useful across the spectrum from fighting things in a city hall to the, to the White House. Right. So you mentioned state and, and, and municipal level uh, intrusions. Uh, let's talk about some of those. I know that before we turned the mics on, you were talking about, uh, about some issues in Missouri. Why don't we start there? Well, Missouri is really a, a, our first local issue we, we want to chat about. It seems like ever since about 2009, the St. Louis City, St. Louis County, uh, and St. Charles County region within Missouri always wants to have a public referendum on an across-the-board, no-exemption smoking ban. Well, it got to a real breaking point where, I, I, I can't believe I'm using these numbers, but heart, lung, cancer, the public health community, spent over a half a million dollars on smoking ban issues in that region. That's a tremendous, you can't raise that kind of money in the cigar industry. So you have to fight them in a different way. Right. And this referendum consistently was looming over the, over the, the heads of these retailers in St. Louis. So we scheduled a strategy session out there. And uh, on a Tuesday morning, we have a dozen brick and mortar community tobacconists showing up for a meeting in another given competitor cigar shop saying, we've got to do something. And uh, we're going to try to do a preemption ordinance where right now, before the referendum, go on record uh, with an ordinance that says if there is a smoking ban, cigar shops that would be very narrowly defined would be exempt. Well, this type of an analysis, which we've already shipped out to St. Louis, uh, will be useful in telling that public health story that we're not the problem. On questions of inhalation, addiction, and youth access, we're not the problem. So there should be a clear exemption in their local government ordinance. Uh, but let's chat a little bit about the state level because we're in the throngs and, and in some respects the end of the, the proverbial state government season mm-hmm. that begins every January right after New Year's and goes through the early days of spring. Uh, and this year there was a real scare in Oklahoma. Uh, and I say these, these states and localities because I think they're metaphors for what goes on across the country. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Because if there's a comprehensive across-the-board smoking ban in Oklahoma, it can happen in Texas. Sure. It can happen in a Wyoming. Uh, when Michael Bloomberg or, or Mayor de Blasio of New York City hear, hear about a great smoking ban or a, a regulatory proposition in Oregon or Washington State or California, they go, oh, maybe we should try that in New York City. Mm-hmm. It's how bad ideas spread in this industry in tobacco control. So anyway, the uh, Republican Speaker Pro Tem of the Oklahoma legislature introduced a bill for an across-the-board, no-exemption smoking ban. And the retailers uh, got their act together, and people like Todd Nafa, who I was just with at TAA, gets his fellow retailers together, hit the Capitol. 
We wrote the pro tem offering to help design amendment and exemption processes for the legislation. On the same day the retailers were in the Capitol telling their story, we had a consumer committee uh, led by Oklahoma author Ted King. Ted King wrote a book called uh, The War on Smoking and the Rise of the Nanny State. It's a great little book that you can get on Amazon now. And he led a citizen's committee, if you will, to go office to office to office to help tell the story of why it was bad at the same time the retailers were. And the IPCPR sent their uh, Western lobbyists to Oklahoma to work with the retailers. It was a team effort to do this. And now the bill's dead. That's the way it ought to work. Yep. But it's indicative of what happens across this country. And and given that they're coming back into session, based upon some intel that we got in the last couple of weeks, we're not going to be surprised if a very, very similar piece of across-the-board smoking ban bill is not introduced in the, uh, in the state of Louisiana. Wow. Uh, so we're not uh, out of the woods in that regard. Just to give you another couple of examples, it's dead now, but it put the scare into the retailers in, Oak- in uh, Arizona. And we all know that Phoenix is a got to be, from what I've heard, the only place outside of Atlanta that has the greatest concentration of cigar shops uh, per capita than anywhere in America. We were there recently. I didn't do a count, but I believe it. Oh, my God. It's like 60, 80, some huge number yeah. for a few million people. Uh, but there was referendums are the worst possible thing for tobacco control because yeah. it happens in Alabama. Uh, they can't pass a smoking ban. They say, let's have a referendum. Well, you can't win a referendum. Politically, you just can't win a public referendum on a smoking type of issue or a, any anti-tobacco type of, of legislative matter that goes to referendum. So there was a uh, there was a piece of legislation that would have called for a dramatic tax increase on cigars in Arizona if it had gone to a referendum, and they successfully killed that piece of legislation. But on the positive side, who would have thought in the era of smoking bans that a member of the Arkansas legislature this year introduced a, a bill to reverse or amend the Arkansas across-the-board smoking ban? Just the fact that it was introduced is is novel. Uh, just because it's a great model for other places in the country, a member of the North Dakota legislature introduced a bill to allow for cigar bars in the state of North Dakota in the wake of their smoking ban. Uh, expansion of smoking bar uh, ordinance legislation in the state of Connecticut. At the same time, a tax increase in the state of Connecticut, which went down. So it's a it's a mixed bag. Yeah. And it always is. Uh, but so far, nothing horrible, if you will, has happened to date. But it proves why you have to be on your toes every single day in the in the new era of the politics of cigars. Absolutely, yeah. And we were actually you mentioned uh, Washington briefly there, and we were um, the last travel story we did all centers on Seattle, um, and that that and Boston seemed to me like of the of all the places that we've been, of all the major metro areas that we've been for purposes of, of travel stories, is sort of like the the ultimate. Uh, cautionary tale, right, of, of well, what, what it could end up looking like. It, it's amazing to me, and my good friend on, and fellow uh, cigar compatriot, but a member of our board of directors, Mark Brownlee, is here with us at this at this recording. And uh, he lives outside of Chicago. As my phone rings. Oh, that's good. Oh, we should have let that go. <laughs> we should have let that <laughs> little Mission Impossible action on the phone. But he lives outside of Chicago. It's absolutely insane that a metropolitan area as great and wonderful as, as Chicago, Illinois, doesn't have one cigar bar in the city right. of Chicago. It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, you've got to go out to the and, suburbs. And we're going to be working on that, as a matter of fact. And we'll talk about that sometime. But uh, think about a metropolitan area, 600,000 people, the, as wonderful as they are. Uh, you mentioned Boston. 
and you really have one cigar bar at yeah. Distanze. Yeah. Uh, and it's the, the, the great, one of the great cigar watering holes of America, but it's one. Yeah. Uh, and Seattle, it's insane. You can't smoke in a cigar shop in the city of Seattle in a cigar shop. Yeah. And every year the retailers try to charge after legislation to reverse that. They, to virtually penalize themselves, their own bill says we retailers would have to pay a $5,000 licensing fee to have the privilege of allowing smoking in our cigar shops. And it still doesn't pass. Right, right. Yeah, in Seattle, they've got their whole thing about that because it also uh, bars people from having smoking where there are any employees, so in any workplace. And you end up with things like um, uh, Rain City Cigars in Seattle has their uh, – what Bill, their owner, calls uh, not Bill. Um, oh God, sorry, I'm blanking on his name. Joe but, Rundell. Yes, yes, Joe. I was just with him at TA as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. So Joe's got his uh, his short bus, as he calls it. He's got his proverbial short bus out in front of his store, uh, and so you've got to pay. A, there's a day pass system to go and smoke in a bus in the parking lot, which is and just, there's a private know, club, the Vertigo, Vertigo club, club. Yeah, Bill. Bill is, is the owner of the Vertigo Club. Alexander, uh, I think. Wait, well, anyway, oh, the Bill, the manager. At Vertigo Club, we're thinking about the same place and same people. I know we're talking about Vertigo, yeah. But yeah. Uh, but it, what's the commentary there about the Vertigo Club is it's a great place to smoke cigars, but they can have zero employees. Exactly right, and it's the same deal with that bus. And uh, it's Joe's the, the industrial park, in the bus. you know. Yeah, we're we're the way we're treated is like modern day lovers. Right, it's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. So uh, now that we're talking about some of these tobacconists. Uh, one of the things that, in in my own talking to some of the people who are most engaged, and I won't go into naming names because then I'm sure that'll end up causing <laughs> friction because people will figure out oh, he must have been talking about me. Or, but the people who are most engaged express to me anyway that one of their biggest frustrations is how hard it is to get their neighborhood competition engaged. In other no words, that's, that's so so how how is it that uh, what is it that that CRA does to move people from uh let's call it apathy or lack of engagement or or disinterest to that realization of like okay this needs to matter to me and i need to do something about it uh not just tobacconists but also consumers great question i mean we're still in the youth period of orchestrating an an effective political campaign across the board for premium handmade cigars um it's something that if it had come to be 20 some years ago it'd be a different political day. Uh, it really should have started during the proverbial 90s boom, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's almost stunning, and it almost does bring me to silence, stunned silence when I think about this. Uh, because if you do anything in tobacco, you've automatically got a political target on your back. Um, people like Rocky Patel and Ernesto Corella are very eloquent, and they're, they're articulating how artisanal the industry is and how it ought to be uh, a great analogy to the wine industry, um, you know, in terms of the demographic that it appeals to, telling the that romance story, if you will, about premium man-made cigars. Well, if they started that in the 90s, it'd be a different political game. There's a great book about this called Velvet Glove, Iron Fist. It's really an academic study on the history of the anti-smoking movement from when you could be shot in the public square in Turkey and, and Russia for using tobacco through a more modern context where you realize if the industry started to get its political act together in the early 80s, it'd be a wholly different tale today. Instead, we've just been fighting the federal uh, legislative action over the course of the last seven years in terms of going on defense, and we'll chat about that in a second. Um, 
But right now we make a lot of noise with very little money and a limited staff. And to go to the heart of your question, uh, at the retail level, there are many, many states that I could go through and count one, maybe two retailers that really play that central role, that orchestrate the retail outreach to the state capital level, um, that pull together coalitions that speak for the, every retailer in their given state, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it's it, that pro, I don't like you. I don't want to start pointing right, fingers, yeah. but in some of the states that have almost predictable political issues every single year, you would think that would be the wake up call and it's not. And I think there's a level of complacency and comfort level. They're still making a good living. The tuition's paid. The car payment's made. And, you know, they're they're meeting their needs. And there's a level of I'm just too comfortable and everything's going to be okay. Yeah. I think there's also an element of, and, and I see this with some of the cigar makers, especially ones who, uh, who left Cuba, to whether they're making cigars in the Dominican or Nicaragua, their business is ultimately in the States. And there's also this attitude of... Uh, this country would never do this to me. That it just it couldn't happen. It's, it's so beyond the pale to them that they there. There's almost this sort of blinder thing, like no, this thing that has happened that's got to be some isolated thing that I shouldn't have to worry about. Because it's almost like one day before they they uh, changed hands in New York City when it was still uh, uh, Della Concha before it was the mm-hmm. Davidoff shop. Uh, I was in there one day, and uh, my friend Ron Melendi was the manager at the time. And this guy came in and he said, I felt more free in Moscow and Beijing than I do in New York with a cigar. And I hear folks from uh, uh, Cuban lineage that come and say, oh, the government would never do that to right. us. The government would never do that. Well, in many ways, it's worse than in terms of the cigar industry. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not politically, but in terms of the cigar industry. Um, what has happened in and, and cause documents like this to have to be produced, to cause legislation to be introduced to protect the industry, uh, for millions of dollars to have to be expended to defend this industry. Uh, who would have thought it? Yeah. And and after President Obama signed that Tobacco Control Act in 2009, all bets were off. And uh, there's still that level of denial. But it, that denial, as we've said, exists as much at the state level and city halls as it does in Washington, D.C. Yeah. So speaking of cigar makers, there's some news about cigar makers in the U.S. Talk a little bit about that coalition of, of cigar makers that's formed. It's really unique, and I, I mentioned it was triggered by a January 31st story in Cigar Aficionado, about 50 remaining rollers in the, in the United States. Um, and the thought became, well, this is another unique small business side of the argument. And I didn't know that there was that many of them left in America. We consistently worked with on messaging and the like, and they've helped us with the Louisiana delegation consistently, but the cigar factory on Decatur Street in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And and I'm getting ready after we leave this discussion this morning. I'm going to go over here to Sandy Cobas at El Titan de Bronze. Mm-hmm. They stand out. They're, they're noted. They're producing some of the greatest cigars in the country right now. Uh, but to have 50. So we had our staff start calling each and every one of them. And 37 in 17 states have said yes to being a part of a coalition of American cigar rollers. It's going to help reinforce that American jobs message to the Trump administration. Uh, so um, uh, Rodriguez Cigars in Key West is going to help co-chair this with Sandy Cobas here in Miami at LT Tan de Bronze. Uh, we've had rollers uh, discussions literally spanning from California to Key West. 
a strong concentration of those rollers are, in, of all places, the New York, New Jersey market, which can help us. So the Wednesday before TAA, week before last, um, I did a presentation in Washington uh, on that Wednesday for two new members' offices and one existing member. But one of them was Congressman Espelant, who took Charlie Rangel's seat in New York City, got the, the greater Harlem district. Strong Dominican population. Well, the significance of Congressman Espelant is he's the first Dominican national to be elected to Congress and is currently in this Congress. And they got it. They truly got it. Well, he's a Democrat. Yeah. And people will talk about, oh, we're screwed. Nancy Pelosi's in charge. <laughs> you know? yeah. Well, we've got some strong allies in the Democratic caucus. Kathy Castor of Tampa uh, is going to be the lead sponsor on a piece of legislation that I want to chat about in just a second. Uh, and Congressman Esplant has the great potential of becoming an advocate for the industry. Um, so in that respect, that American cigar roller element having concentrations, well, what up? Jumping around a little bit. I did these presentations. In between those two presentations, I went to 16 different house offices representing those rollers. Virtually all of them liberal Democrats. Well, I'm not saying that in a disparaging way because that's going to give us a new message to a new audience. And politically, that's very significant. People are going to be hearing, you've got bona fide constituents, hopefully constituents that we can get angry mm-hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> at the thought of the federal government infringing upon that given rollers business and their congressional district. Um, some new members from Nevada, uh, six in Texas. I mean, but predominantly, interestingly enough, those rollers in that coalition, here comes Mission Impossible again, my wife turns it off. <laughs> Uh huh. Oh boy. So anyway, uh, it's going to give us a new message to a new audience. Yeah. Uh, so that legislation that you wanted to talk about, real let's, quick. Let's jump into that. Um, Marco Rubio was re-sworn in on January the third. I point out Senator Rubio not just because we're here in Florida, but because he acted with a great deal of leadership. He's now the senior citizen from the state of senior citizen, senior senator. From the state of Florida. And on January the 4th, the morning of January the 4th, and it gave us a low bill number, which sounds great, S-9. He filed S-9, which is our exemption legislation again in the 116th session of Congress. Uh, came out of the shoot with 10 co-sponsors in the United States Senate, uh, bipartisan. Uh, Democrats like Bob Casey of Pennsylvania signed on to the bill early on. We'll have it back up to 20 pretty soon. And uh, by Monday of this next week coming up, I'm not sure when this will broadcast, but uh, by this coming Monday, uh, Congresswoman Kathy Castor will be the lead Democrat on the filing of a similar bill in the House of Representatives. And if my numbers, from what I heard yesterday, she's going to come out of the shoot with 20 bipartisan co-sponsors on that bill. And collectively, between the Rubio legislation and the Castor legislation, it's going to be a great message to reinforce our message to the Trump administration. Sure. So uh, is there anything that people that you'd encourage people to do in the lead up to that? Absolutely. Uh, I want I want to start next week with a fresh petition to the United States Congress. Mm-hmm. So go to cigarrights.org. It'll be a front top bar. You can do it today for your members of the Senate. But if you wait until uh, early next week, you can hit one button with your name and zip code. It will automatically send our message, i.e. your message, to protect the premium cigar sector. It'll go to specifically your two members of the United States Senate and and your member of the House of Representatives. Uh, And it's important to do that. We put over a half a million messages over the last three sessions of Congress in. And when you get a half a million messages into it, into your member of Congress, they pay attention. Yeah. 
and they keep a track of those yays and nays coming from their district. And I can assure you the anti-tobacco, the anti-cigar lobby will be working feverishly doing the exact same thing. So it's important to let our message be heard. Good stuff. So we'll end on a couple of uh, slightly more personal questions. Do you remember how you got into cigars? Yes. Uh, and my wife is here with me. But uh, we we uh, live in Roanoke, Virginia. And for the first time ever, you know, we didn't, we don't, small town, we don't have a Morton's or a, a Roos Chris or something like that. But a local entrepreneur put up just a world-class steakhouse called Frankie Rollins. And it was physically attached to our 100-year-old local cigar shop. Literally a wall between them. And that Frankie Rollins went up and cigars were welcome. We walk into it for the first time and it was like walking into the proverbial Morton's, you know, type of atmosphere. We're like, good God, we've got a place like this. It was one of those atmospheres where you walk in and you go, this place demands a cigar. So I go into the shop next door. I walk into the humidor and I said, I've got to have a cigar. So I never talk about what I smoke because when you work for 65 companies, they're all your favorite. But right. I will say that Ernesto Corello with a Lagoria Cabana was my first cigar. And I said, this is what go. I should have sitting in that steakhouse. And and that started all probably 22 years ago. That's funny. People talk about gateway drugs all the time. Yours was steak. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I'm fond of saying to, a, to another broadcast, the only way red meat's going to kill you is if it's faster than you are. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then the, the last thing I wanted to get into was what were you doing uh, before you were making your living with cigars? And has the work that you've done with CRA and the cigar industry changed at all the way that you think broadly about government, about politics? about Because <laughs> it is sort of a very it, – it's a different perspective on all these issues, right? Uh, for the seven years, seven and a half years prior to CRA, I had my own lobbying firm, Commonwealth Advanced Lobbying and Government Relations Business Development type of activity. I loved working for myself and, and had about 17 different clients. And I, one of them was the Cigar Association of Virginia. Okay. And they brought me in just because of that same cigar shop in Roanoke, Virginia. We built a coalition on smoking ban issues in Virginia. And I, I, I did it for cigars, not money. Literally, I was working for cigars. The, the, the biggest piece of compensation I got was when Shorty Cable, uh, owner of Havana Connections in Richmond, after one day of legislative testimony, gave me a, a cutter. <laughs> I said, thanks. <laughs> but through that process, got to know a lot of the guys in the industry. And uh, to make a long story short, after one uh, weekend uh, of whining and dining House Republicans on that smoking ban in Virginia, uh, CRA began, and we started having those discussions. So that was it. And I've always been involved in government relations or lobbying. My first job out of college was working for the Virginia legislature, both the House, the Senate, and a former governor. Mm-hmm. And um, so I've always just been a political tramp, and I've always been lucky to lobby and advocate for things that I actually believe in. Good stuff. All right. Uh, you want to go ahead and just plug stuff before we sign off? Cigarrights.org. Uh, join. Uh, you get two great cigars when you do it. We're, we've dropped the price from $35 to $25. You get two great cigars for doing it. Uh, you'll start getting our newsletters, keeping you informed on all the political arena as it revolves around the premium cigar industry across the country. But it's about consumer engagement. It's about building up cigar smokers as a bona fide political constituency. So join the cause. Good stuff. All right. So again, this has been the Cigar Snob Podcast. We're here with Glenn Loop of Cigar Rights of America. You can find us at cigarsnobmag.com, uh, as well as uh, episodes of the podcast at cigarsnobmag.com slash podcast. Subscribe to the podcast on Google Play Music, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher. Uh, And follow us on social media. We're Cigar Snob Mag on all of the social media things. Thanks a lot.